So how weird is Christianity? And uh, in what ways is it weird? What's, what's weird about it? Well, I want to give you a case in point. It was a conversation that Russell Moore, who's a Christian ethicist and author, and conversation he had with an LBGTQ uh, activist in what he said was just an urban center in America. And she was very curious about him. She had all kinds of questions. She was peppering him with questions. And she was particularly interested in the things he was saying about a Christian sexual ethic. And he describes the conversation as having been very civil and uh, respectful, uh, except for maybe one little uh, side thing. She kept laughing out loud when he would talk about some things that Christians and Jews have believed actually for millennia, for thousands of years. Uh, but she wasn't doing it in a disrespectful way. She just really found it funny. She'd not quite heard things like this before coming out of someone's mouth. And she was especially interested in Christian sexual ethics. And that's where most of her questions were focused. She said to him, you're the first person that I have actually talked to who believes that sex belongs within marriage between a man and a woman. You're actually the first real person I have ever talked to that thinks this way. And so they talked at length, interrupted every once in a while by her laughter. And she said, towards the end of the conversation, she said, so you see how strange what you're saying sounds to us, to those of us out here in normal America. Seriously, do you know how strange you sound to me? Well, when you put the Christian sexual ethic up against what is, what most people believe today, it is weird. And Moore wanted to drive home, yeah, <laughs> it is. So he, he, thought, um, he thought for a few moments and he wanted to say it just right. And this is what he said. He says, yes, I do. It sounds strange to me too. But what you should know is we believe even stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up again in the sky on a horse. <laughs> Just in case you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, maybe you're a new Christian, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, that is what the Bible describes. Uh, and it is, it is weird. Um, when he puts it like that, it kind of, for those of us who just kind of live in this environment in our minds and hearts and reading the Bible, um, we need kind of that kind of little reminder to remember it. So Russell Moore in a lot of his work and a lot of what he does and his writing and speaking, and uh, one of the things that he tries to do is keep that, those aspects of Christianity that are weird, weird. Keep us from kind of getting rid of those things that uh, sound uh, out of line with the way most people think. Stop trying to make our faith simply fit in really nicely with everything else. Um, and the reason why is because when we try to make our faith sound normal and fit in, we actually lose the essence of what it is. And when we do that, it actually loses its power. And I'm not just saying that, it's not an idea that Russell Moore came up with. It is what the Apostle Paul actually says in our passage. Uh, he wants Christians to keep Christianity weird. 
And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. That is his point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, so it's a letter that, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church he founded in a Greek, Greek city named Corinth. And so when he wrote this letter to them, he wrote the letter because after staying with them for a couple of years and basically serving as their founding pastor, he had left and he had gone to start other churches in different places within the Roman Empire. And sometime later, he gets a visitor from, or some visitors from Corinth, and they tell him about some of the things that are going on in that church. And the church is filled with all kinds of problems. If you read 1 Corinthians really carefully and you read a little bit between the lines and you know what's going on in the culture of that day, it becomes very evident that underlying all the problems there is this attitude that a lot of people have within that church, that many have within that church, that they are super spiritual in some way, that they've achieved some kind of sp spiritual sense of existence that means what they do in their daily life doesn't really matter very much because they're living up here. It's a very Greek idea, Greek philosophy type of idea. And because of that, all kinds of things are going on within the congregation. There are divisions, people taking sides with some of the founders of Christianity. I'm going to be on this guy's side, I'm going to be on this guy's side. It's usually based on uh, what they find impressive in that particular leader. They, um, they're flaunting their, their freedom that they have in Christ. And part of the way that they're flaunting is some of them are going to prostitutes in the pagan temples in Corinth. Uh, some of them are participating in pagan temple rituals, sacrifices to gods. Not, not directly, it's not like they're bringing the animal, but they're participating by going to the temples and participating in dinners where that is part of what's going on there. And they're even kind of in their kind of super spirituality, they're actually uh, taking advantage of the poor in their own congregation. Uh, they look down on them. They are not treating them with respect. Uh, they want a Christianity, it becomes very clear, and you'll see it in the passage, they want a Christianity that fits into their culture, and Paul makes a case for keeping Christianity weird, not fitting into the culture. And the, the crux of the argument begins in verse 18 of chapter 1, and he reminds them that the core of the Christianity is this very counter-cultural, weird event, and it's called the cross, and the crucifixion. Our Savior, the one we say is our Savior, was crucified, he reminds them, as a criminal. He didn't have to remind them that it was as a criminal. That's the only reason people were crucified back then. We have to be reminded of that. He was crucified as a criminal. And it wasn't some accident of history. It wasn't like, wow, he came to save us, and people are mean. And so they don't like somebody that's loving like he is, and so he was killed by the bad guys. That's, that's, not, that's not how it worked. He actually came to be humiliated. He actually came to die as a sacrifice. He actually came to die on a cross. Crucifixion was a torturous way to die. But that's not, that's not the worst part of it. Um, when you were crucified, you were humiliated. Uh, when you were crucified, your clothes were torn off you and you were basically put up on a cross for everyone to see, essentially uh, naked, um, 
as far as they were concerned, even though they might leave a cloth on. You spent hours gasping for air. The position itself was made f so that you can't breathe and you have to keep pushing yourself up to breathe and down. And push it. That's why when they, when they wanted to, like, this is going on too long, they're not dying fast enough, they would break their thigh bones so that they couldn't lift themselves up anymore. And then they would just die of suffocation. And that's how you died, of exhaustion, not being able to pull yourself up anymore, suffocating. It was a public torture that went on for hours. And it was calculated to humiliate. It was calculated by the Romans to humiliate. And, and there was nothing heroic about it. I mean, we, we know Jesus said we're supposed to take up our cross. We know that our Savior, Jesus, died on a cross. For us, that is like a heroic symbol. In the first century, there was nothing heroic about it. To claim to be a follower of the king of the cosmos, the king of the universe, who came preaching a kingdom saying that the kingdom is here in me, who winds up dying a humiliating death on a cross. Anyone, you say that to someone back then, they would look at you like you are deserving of all the mockery we can put on you because you are an idiot. Can't you see? He's not a king. No king would be treated like that. No king would allow that to happen, much less the king of the universe who supposedly has all the power to be able to get himself down from the cross. You deserve all the mockery that you Christians are getting. And Paul reminds them of this. They want to fit in culturally. And he says, no, you're weird. You're not going to fit in culturally. So look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There it is. It's weird. It's stupid. It's strange. Really strange for us normal people in Corinth that you would have this message. Look at verse 22. Jews, and remember Paul is a Jew who believes that Jesus is the coming king that they've been waiting for. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles, non-Jews. But to those whom God has called, both Greek, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. And then he reminds them uh, that if they were to just look around, they would notice that in their midst, in their group of people, in the church in Corinth, there are not a whole lot of movers and shakers from society. It's not like God wanted to make sure he was going to assemble all the like, top-notch people in Corinth who are running things. No, he chose people who are, from the, from, from the perspective of everyone else in that society, nobodies. There are some somebodies in Corinth from a cultural perspective. There's a few. But he said, not many of you are. And so he reminds of that in verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, again, remember, he's, 
they're, they think they are lofty and they have, you know, some special knowledge and they are above everything. They are like better than, some of them literally better than Paul. They've reached a, a, a state of spirituality. And he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's intentional. So that no one may boast before him. A humiliator, humiliated, a crucified king who chooses nobodies to be his followers. And a lot of the rest of the first Corinthians, Corinthians is an expansion on what he is saying in those, in those verses. Don't try to fit in. You don't. If you try, if you decide to follow Jesus, you will never fit in. Keep Christianity weird. As you work your way through 1 Corinthians, there are three traits that define the problem in Corinth. The first one is there is a consumer mentality amongst the believers there. There is a what's in it for me toward their faith in Christ. It, it, it shines bright in the letter. A second trait is there's a strong desire to fit into the wider culture, um, to... Um, to be culturally respectable. And the third one is an arrogance and a pride uh, for their spiritual accomplishments and status. Those are the traits. And Paul's answer here at the very outset is to keep Christianity weird by keeping the cross central to their faith. So we need to hear this message and we need to apply this message. We need to keep Christianity weird. We need to keep it distinct from the dominant men uh, messages of our culture. And, and the question is, how do we do it? And I'm going to look at three different ways. We're going to look at three different ways today. The first one is we have to put up a good fight against consumer faith. Because it's always threatening our hearts, every single one of us. We are all consumers. We live in a consumer society. We cannot not be consumers. <laughs> it is ingrained in who we are. What, what is it? What is consumer faith? Um, uh, reading a wonderful book, I'm reading a wonderful book, a new book by uh, Brett McCracken called Uncomfortable. And I'm going to quote it more than once uh, during this, this sermon. But here's what he says. When we treat faith, this is what it is. When we treat faith like a consumer product, we look at what the Bible says and we choose exactly what we want from it. And then we take only what we want from it and then we move on doesn't mean we leave it behind. We just take what we want and we move on with life. Consumer faith puts the focus on what we can get out of it. Well, guess what gets eliminated when you treat your faith as if it was a consumer product? It's what I want, what's going to serve my purpose as well. What gets eliminated are the weird things in Scripture. And the weird things are actually, Paul says, where the wisdom of God and where the power of God reside. For the message of the cross, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness. It's weird. To those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, there's a way that we can't, there's a sense in which, we, like I said, we can't stop being consumers. We, it's like, it's not even because we live in a consumer age. It's because it's like built into our DNA to go, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? It doesn't mean we have to give in, though. It doesn't mean that we don't put up a fight. Uh, doesn't mean that we don't, you know, keep it from ruling our lives and our choices and the way that we live out our faith and with other believers in our relationship with God. Ed Stetzer, who's a commentator on, on all things going on in our culture, he says, religious consumerism is hardwired into the human heart. This is natural. The gospel is calling us, though, to something that is supernatural. Maybe natural, but we're being called to something that is supernatural. I don't know many times people, some of you, in fact, that your first time at Five Oaks, and I might ask you a question that leads you to say something like, yeah, we're looking for a church, and, um, and then this happened a lot of times, you know, it's just we kind of sheepishly, we're church shopping. <laughs> and as soon as it comes out of the mouth, it's like, ah, you know, for them, you know, they go, ah, we know that that's not good, but, and I'm like, no, 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 you know, if we have time, just like, how can you not, right? We're not living in the 1800s. Horse and buggy days, you've got to go to church somewhere that you can get there by horse and buggy. <laughs> you have choices. You have a car. <laughs> you have choices about where you're going to go to church. You have lots of choices. It's not like you get into town and there are maybe three choices, and you find the one that's closest to what your family has believed for generations. It's going to be Catholic, or it's going to be Lutheran, or it's going to be some kind of Anabaptist-type tradition. That's it. You know, so um, we don't live in that day, so we have to shop. But that doesn't mean that, that consumerism has to dominate our minds and our hearts and the way that we react and live. We don't have to treat our faith consumeristically. So how can we fight that? I want to suggest three ways to fight it. One of the ways that we fight it is don't take the weird out of it. I mean, that's where it starts. Don't take the weird. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Don't take the weird out of it. Don't leave out the countercultural parts of our faith. Don't take the uncomfortable things out. Don't take the inconvenient things out of our faith. Don't eliminate those things. Don't try to make the gospel palpable to American, Western, 21st century society. It's just consumerism. It's hypocritical. It's not true. It's don't Americanize the gospel. Don't tame the gospel. A second way is seek equipping for service. So you're looking for a church, for, for example. You're looking for a church. What are you looking for? Church, a lot of times we think a church that feeds me spiritually. And that's not a bad idea, except it falls so far short. It's like, what is your job as a parent is to put food on the table? Is that it? <laughs> the church exists to equip people for mission. So what are you looking for in a church? I'm looking for a church that will teach me how to feed myself because most of the feeding is not going to happen in one hour a week. I, I, I'm looking for a church that's going to equip me for ministry. I'm going to church, look for a church that is doing ministry not only with each other but out in our city and loving our cities? That's 
it's consumerist. You know, it's a, you, may, you know, you're making a choice, but it's not consumeristic. It's not about me. Uh, a third thing is then serve. I mean, that's, that's the biggest way to overcome the what's in it for me mentality is to serve. Take, take up a towel, as Jesus did when he washed his disciples. Take up a towel and serve people. And not just in here, serve people wherever we go in our world. So to keep Christianity weird, we have to give up on a consumer faith. Just set it aside. Uh, secondly, we have to give up on achieving cultural respectability and acceptance. And we want that. Every single one of us wants that. John Stott, who is, um, just died a few years ago, one of the great, great minds, preachers, um, theologians of the 20th century, British theologian, he said, either we preach, either we preach that human beings are rebels against God under his judgment and if left to themselves lost, which is what the Bible teaches, and that Christ crucified who bore their sin and curse is the only available savior. Either we preach that or we emphasize human poten potential and human ability with Christ brought in only to boost your human potential and your human ability with no necessity for the cross except, well, that it exhibits God's love and so inspires us to greater endeavors. So the former is the way to be faithful. The latter is the way to be popular. And then he adds this on the end of that. He says, it is not possible to be faithful and popular simultaneously. And he wrote that over 40 years ago in Great Britain. Now it's taken us a while to kind of reach the, the secularization of European countries. We're not even there yet. <laughs> We're very close. Um, but if that was true back then, it's, it's that much more true now. Pastor Mark Sayers from Australia, written a book, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down, wrote a book called The Disappearing Church. The Disappearing Church. And his, the subtitle is From Cultural Relevance to Gospel Resilience. It's a book that I wish everybody would read. It's not an easy read, uh, but it is a book I wish everyone would read. And one of, one of the... One of the arguments that he makes in there, one of the, the streams of thought that he brings through that book is that since about the 1980s, in some cases going back to the 60s, uh, Christians, at least in Western countries, have tried to build a very relevant church, a church that is relevant to society. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that in doing so, we have failed to build resilient Christians. That is, Christians to use the idea from today, who Christians who have um, backbone and resilience to keep Christianity weird, not to cave into the pressure to fit in, to take our, the ideas of Christianity and make them just fit nicely into the society around us. Christians who can hold true to the gospel, Christians who take seriously what Paul says and still believe in a cross and all the implications of a cross and a crucified savior that can live that even in a society that says that is the strangest thing I've ever heard. Doesn't make any sense and sounds actually stupid. <laughs> we need to develop resilient Christians. That's not a call to retreat. 
to become irrelevant. <laughs> okay, it's not a call to irrelevance. It's a call to grow deeper in our faith and at the same time bolder in our faith. Let me be clear about something. When I say bolder in our faith, I'm not saying to drop gospel bombs on people on Facebook or to join some kind of screaming mob asking for our rights as Christians or something. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not what Paul did. To be bolder means to live on mission, loving people who think we're strange and being willing to, to share the gospel, the message of Christ's love, to go humbly. It's in the, in the words of Scripture time and time again. It says we ought to be speaking about our faith, but doing it in a gentle and respectful way. Bolder, gentle, and respectful. It's not a retreat. It's not a, ah, oh, the world out there, they hate us. It's terrible. They think what we believe is, is terrible. No, it's, it's about growing deeper, but not retreating. Paul doesn't sound a retreat. And he didn't live that way either. He knows that the cross in the Christian life might be weird to most people, but he qualifies it. You heard it. He qualifies it by saying, it's weird to those who are perishing. It's weird to those who are on a trajectory as far away from Jesus as they can get. That's their trajectory. People who are on a trajectory to live life eternally without God, because that's what they want. But for people who are being saved, which in a biblical mindset is not just those who are, but those who are on a trajectory in that direction, even if they're going in that direction, <laughs> in the opposite direction. Those who are being saved, it eventually becomes something that it's like, no, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. They will see it. There's no reason for retreat. Don't retreat, don't lose hope, grow deeper in your faith and grow in boldness for sharing your faith through compassionate love and through the most compassionate words we can share, which is that Jesus loves you in spite of your rebellion against God, that we are fellow rebels, that we need, we need God's grace not just to be saved, we need God's grace today and tomorrow because we are broken and we are so often faithless. Which leads into the third way of keeping Christianity weird, which is to let go of spiritual pride. Let go of it. So, again, look at verse 28. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So no one can be proud. No one can be arrogant in their Christianity. Boasting in ourselves, in our own wisdom, in our own associations, boasting dis betrays a fundamental misunderstanding, possibly even a rejection of God's grace. It's just fundamentally completely the opposite of grace. Grace levels the playing field. Brett McCracken again. One of the most offensive things about the cross of Christ has always been its leveling aspect, giving insider access to prostitutes, tax collectors, and the pariahs of society just as much as to the religious and cultural elites. It's offensive to us. 
McCracken illustrates it. I'm going to close with this. I want to share with you a story. It's, he, he illustrates it with a scene from a movie I haven't seen, um, but it's a movie called Secret Sunshine. It's a Korean film. And it's a short film, and it shows the scandal of grace in a very powerful way. It's a story about a woman, a, the main character, whose son has been murdered. And, and the scene that he describes, the scene where she's telling her friends that she's going to go to the prison and she's going to face him face to face, and she's going to tell him that she has become a Christian. She's a new Christian. And that, that she has been forgiven of her sins and that she wants to come and see the man who killed her son. And her friends say, you don't need to go to prison <laughs> to get that message to him. And she goes, no, no, I, I need to go. And um, in, in reality, truth be told, I want to see his face when I tell him this. And so she sits down on the other side of the glass from the man who murdered her son. And uh, she says, she looks at him and she's, she sees he seems joyful. It's like he's a happy person. Um, he seems peaceful. And so she looks at him, she says, you look better than I expected. And she says, she tells her story. She says, I found new life. I found new life in God in the gospel. God has forgiven me of my sins. Jesus died for my sins. She tells her story. And then there's the twist, because the prisoner says, me too, since coming to prison. Yes, I have accepted God as my Savior. I've accepted Jesus into my heart. The Lord has reached out to this sinner. He's referring to himself. It's not what she expected. In fact, it shakes her up. And it's evident on her face and on her tone as the scene continues. She says, it's good that you found God. But she says it kind of tentatively. And so the convicted murderer goes on. He says, yes, I am so grateful. God reached out to a sinner like me. He made me, lie down, uh, he made me kneel to repent of my sins. And God has absolved me of all my sins. And this is where she begins to fall apart. She goes, God has forgiven your sins. He says, yes, and I have inner peace. My repentance and absolution has brought me peace. Now I start and end each day with prayer, and I will always pray for you, Miss, Ms. Lee. I'll pray for you until I die. And it hits her really hard, and this is what McCracken writes. He says, when she leaves the prison, she collapses, overcome by the horror of the, an idea she had not considered that God could beat her to the punch in forgiving her son's killer, offering this criminal the only absolution he needed. Unfortunately, she can't accept this injustice. How can a law-abiding good citizen like her and a convicted child killer be on the same level in terms of God's grace? And she can't take it. And she abandons God because of it. It's why Paul calls the cross a stumbling block and an offense. In Galatians 5, he calls it an offense. Most people don't want to hear that they can't save themselves unless they're broken enough. And even when we're broken enough, sometimes we still want to save ourselves. 
We don't want to turn to a humiliating, humbling experience of needing forgiveness from God. It's a humbling position to be in. It's a very vulnerable position to be in. But to those who are being saved, it's a relief. It's incredible power. It's a depth of wisdom like no other. And it's an amazing grace. Let's pray.